When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night. We talk a lot about our mentor, James Allen McPherson, on the show, um, but we ac- and we actually met at a memorial for him that was held by the Iowa Writers' Workshop in late summer of 2016. So, which was lucky that we met. I'm glad we met there. I was sad that we were at his memorial. And it also means that we never got to have a chance to have him on the show. He would have been the absolute best guest. Yeah. I've tried to imagine uh, him talking to us on Zoom from his house on Brundell Road. I wonder what his background would have been like. Um, And listening to us impatiently as we try to explain to him that we need him to record his voice separately on the phone. But that's what every guest does, really. Um, do you remember standing in that house with his daughter, Rachel, after that memorial? I do. It's, it's very vivid to me. You know, his, his number is still in my phone. I feel like we had booked him as a guest on the show. We, one of us would have had to go to his house. We would have had to drive there and sit there and log him onto Zoom. And the conversation would have been 100% worth it. Um, I would have done that. I would, yeah. I mean, I, I taught at the workshop the semester after he passed away and my class was actually held in his office and, you know, we've had a lot of guests on the show who've also been um, connected to him or students of his or friends of his. Sam Chang's novel, The Family Chow, was dedicated to him. You know, one writer in my class named her son after him. And I remember standing in his house looking at his typewriters with you, which was maybe at Connie's retirement. I think it was the same night that we were there with Rachel. Uh, I have the typewriter right here in my office. I, I would hold it up, but it's very heavy. It's a big electric typewriter. It's a, I mean, I don't use it, but it's incredibly beautiful gift to have here just for a way to think about him and remember him. So much of Jim was a gift. I think, you know, maybe really all of him, but especially his writing. And so we are very excited to be talking about a new collection of his essays on becoming an American writer, which has just been published by Godine Press. And to do that, we're going to talk to the, with the editor of the collection, Anthony Walton. Anthony is the author of Mississippi, An American Journey, Brothers in Arms, which was written with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Cricket Weather, a collection of poems. He has edited two anthologies of African-American poetry and has written for a variety of publications, including The New York Times, The New Yorker, Oxford American, Kenyon Review, and Seven Days. The recipient of a Whiting Award in nonfiction, he studied at Notre Dame and Brown University. He currently lives in Brunswick, Maine, where he's a senior writer-in-residence at Bowdoin College. Anthony, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor. So Witt and I were just reminiscing about our connections to and memories of Jim McPherson, and we would love to hear some of yours and how you became involved with Jim and his work. Well, um, actually, I, I never met him in person, but I did have teachers. I studied very closely with um, Michael Harper at Brown, 
and he was very close to um, James, and he kind of insisted that I become fluent in his work, and so I have read him for years and thought very carefully about his work, always been fascinated and kind of enchanted by it. I think he's one of the great uh, American writers of the last 50 years, and I also think he's very underknown. And so this project was a wonderful opportunity to, first of all, for me to be able to indulge my curiosity, um, but also to bring this work forward in a way that I thought it should be. In your introduction, you talk about Jim's moral vision and the breadth of his references and the originality of his ambition for the United States. How did all of those ideas, which all are things that I agree with about about his work, um, how did that shape your curation of his collection? What what themes in his writing were you trying to make sure were represented by the the essays that you chose to include here, um, and which ones which uh, maybe ones surprised you on rereading? I, you know, I had read a lot of the essays in here before, but I hadn't read them recently, and I realized that I had not, you know, I I was discovering stuff as reading as I was reading the book too. Well, I was able to read everything. Um, his daughter, Rachel, provided a couple boxes full of um, essays. And there were even things that were unpublished, as there is an unpublished essay in the book. And so I was able to get a sense of his kind of or overarching vision. And what became interesting to me was the uniqueness of the way that he was coming out of his legal training into the moral arena. You know, there's lots of writing about America and race and American history. And it often comes from a more kind of this is the right thing to do, or I guess it's easier to say a moral vision. And it's kind of arguing to people that they should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. Uh, one of the things that became very interesting to me the more that I delved into uh, James's work is how he was coming out of a more of a legal framework uh, especially the 14th Amendment and this idea of uh, due process and equality before the law for everyone, every single person. And I just got more and more fascinated with that as I studied it more. And I then tried to find various ways of illuminating that through different kinds of essays and these different approaches he had, because that's another piece of it. He came at things from so many different angles, so many different styles of essay. Um, that's so interesting because I think, you know, you're exactly right. And all the time that I was, you know, I was a student of Jim's um, and Whitney was as well. And, and we both know Rachel uh, and all the time that I was ever in conversation with him, it was impossible, actually, for me to forget that he was also a lawyer. I never forgot that. Um, and 
that that is sort of like the bones of that are so evident in his nonfiction. And his essays are often very radical and contrary to kind of orthodox thinking. And they're they're also so well supported and and empathetic. And he just really carefully supports his claims. And I think that the nuance of his writing makes his work extraordinarily hard to summarize. But I would love to try anyway um, with the essay Junior and John Doe, which you put in the uh, in the collection first. And I wonder if you could talk about why you chose that as the first essay and if you would read a section for us. I chose it to go first because I thought it made a uh, very interesting and useful gateway into his writing, into his uh, kind of ethos and approach. And I thought about words like, first of all, autobiography. There's always autobiographical content that's very interesting in James's work. Uh, and in some ways, these essays kind of show a shadow autobiography. So I was very interested in that. Um, then I also thought that this essay reflected the complexity of his writing and his thinking in a way that brought us right into kind of the breadth of his work. I also, also thought it provided a context for all of his thematic concern, his thinking. It's just so large, as you just said. It covers so many different areas, and there's so many different kinds of practice in it. And then finally, I thought that the essay served as a kind of manifesto for the rest of his nonfiction writing. And I was able to kind of imagine the rest of it in that arena. And so that's why it went first, because I thought it was just a great kind of slide down into the rest of the work. That's great. Um, would you read a section for us? Sure. Here's a section from uh, Junior and John Doe. Uh, I do not believe that Du Bois or even Ellison could have anticipated the extent to which black people conformed to the white American model during the 1970s and 1980s. Both their analyses assume a limited absorption of white influences into the black American idiom. But traditionally, with black people, this reverse integration has been a highly selective process. Only those traits of the other world that could enhance the group's sense of self were selected by black people to be incorporated into the group's ongoing process of self-making. It was only under a new set of historical circumstances during the past two decades that a large segment of the newly created black middle class assumed that it had much more in common with that idealized other world than it had with the vernacular sources of its own vitality. During these decades, a very large group of black people took a side trip, so to speak, by attempting to standardize an identity apart from the concrete conditions of the group's ethos. 
Many stopped negotiating the complex balance between the moral and aesthetic feeling tones of our own ethos and the influences or trends abstracted from Du Bois's other world. Many allowed an assumed corporate white consensus regarding the nature of reality to predominate over our own instinctive sense of reality. What was once viewed as a spectrum of choices, some of which were to be rejected and some of which were to be selected for incorporation because they fit an enterprise undertaken by any group involved in the process of self-making became for many an opportunity to embrace an abstract white middle-class model in its entirety. Whereas our ancestors had abstracted and recombined with great discrimination and care, many of us accepted unthinkingly the images and trends paraded before us. In doing this, we won with ease our centuries-long battle against discrimination. But we also disrupted our historical process of making a usable identity. And many of us have settled for a simple standardization around the norms, racist and other, of middle-class American life. One advocate of this standardization is Shelby Steele, who sees something heroic in conformity to middle-class norms. Another advocate is Clarence Thomas, whose story about his rise from the outhouses of his youth, up from the outhouse, conforms to the middle-class model of heroism, but stops there. It makes all the difference in the world, at least in the storybooks, whether the hero confronts the dragon or joins him. It makes all the difference in the world what is chosen as the basis of happily ever after. Is it the self-making, self-affirming challenges of the quest, or is it the creature comforts of consumerism and conformity. The issue of race aside, does the basis of ultimate security and identity reside in process or product? If the answer to this question is the former, then perhaps another very basic question should follow. What in the nature of a group ethos or an idiom have we managed to bring forward from our failures in the 1970s and 1980s. The visible leaders of the group are always bemoaning the fact that we are losing our gains. But beyond those material things that can be measured, what else of much great value have we lost? I believe that we have lost or are steadily losing our sense of moral certainty. 
the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. I believe that this moral certainty once was, among the best of us, an ethical imperative. One passed along as a kind of legacy by our ancestors. This was our true wealth, our capital. The portion of this legacy that fueled the civil rights movement was a belief that any dehumanization of another human being was wrong. This moral certainty once had the potential to enlarge our humanity. Beneath it was the assumption that the experience of oppression had made us more human and that this higher human awareness was about to project a vision of what a fully human life, one not restricted by color, should be. We seem to be moving on an ethical level toward a synthesis of the two-ness, the merger of the double self into a better and truer self. That was the end Du Bois had in mind. Because of the complex ways in which the black American idiom relates to the white American essence, there were certain whites who anticipated the projection of a new human style, one which finally transcended race, rising from our struggle. This did not happen. Thank you. So many of Jim's, uh, and by the way, Sugi and I call him Jim because we, when we knew him in class and he would ask you to call him that and so it feels right to, I don't, I don't mean to be like overly familiar with him. Sure. But no. So much of his ideas, you know, are core there, like really central. Um, and, and I want to go back to that Clarence Thomas line. It makes all the difference in the world whether the hero confronts the dragon or joins him. Um, and so he's really talking about, you know, uh, what he believes like there was an opportunity for for black Americans to like create a new self right and and he feels like instead what happened was accepting too much of sort of like what white American middle class values were if I'm understanding his essay correctly yes and I would add to that and say he's also asking and imploring African Americans to not toss out what we already had that there was this tremendous value in what had already been accomplished. And throughout the book, he comes back to a very powerful idea for me of the ancestors and of living up as African-Americans and Americans. For him, there's always that kind of equal statement that we're Americans, we're African-Americans. But to not forget to live up to what the people that came before, you know, think of the faith that the people that got off those ships in Charleston Harbor had, and they kept going. And so one of the things in his work is that African-Americans in particular need to remember that and try to live up to that and not toss that aside. And I think that's part of what you're picking up on there. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. 
I, I remember talking to going to visit Jim, Jim in Iowa City and he was having some issues with like taxes. Okay. And he, he was talking to me about it and he was like, I just don't want to turn into something middle class. And I and I realized like when I see him talking about, you know, the the his his you know, wanting to avoid that conformity of the middle class was really a part of his life. And he I think he applied that to everyone. Like, you know, like you you should try to stay out of that particular set of ideas, right? And I th- I also find that as a living part of his work, constantly sort of talking about that. Certainly. And I talk about that a little bit in the introduction, but if you think about where he came from and because of where he ended up, I think we often forget that this was a boy born into some of the most ferocious and mean segregation. Jim Crow in Savannah, Georgia, South Georgia in the 40s. And so he always had a complex relationship with mainstream middle class, upper class America. Now, I think he negotiated it quite well. Uh, he talks about in one of his essays about how he knew lower class America very well and upper class America very well. And one of the reasons he wrote was to try and understand the middle which he thought he had only been <laughs> kind of halfway successful with. But, but I think that we should always remember that this is a young person who came, as a young person, he came from way outside. And so he's always going to have a jaundiced eye on, you know, what's going on in you know, DuPage County, Illinois, or whatever you want to call it, because he knew, he knew the shadows, you know, I think that that's interesting. Yeah, I think he's also saying, you know, to, to those of us who did come from middle class backgrounds, you know, uh, middle class white backgrounds, right, that 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 there's, there's a, there's a deadness to that culture, certainly something that I felt and identify with. I mean, as I'm thinking about this, it's impossible for me to think about Jim's comments about the middle class without also thinking about just, you know, the other night I was watching the State of the Union and the Democratic Party is constantly hanging its hat. I mean, both parties are really, but the Democratic Party kind of hangs its hat on, you know, the middle class should be accessible to everyone. So when you think about like us letting go of, um, you know, our, the failure, the, the this did not happen line that ends the section that you read. I mean, th- I mean, that's just an example of it because it's sort of, we, we now constantly talk about in our politics, the middle class is like the place we want to reach. And I think maybe another thing he was sort of getting at is just like, like neoliberalism, um, right? And the and politics the that of respectability. Kinda... I think he would have hated yeah. that idea of the politics of respectability. I mean, I knew that, I know that he, that he did, you know? Right. And like all of that, like middle class, like the the idea of the middle classes, um, the goal being like inevitably connected to neoliberalism and our and our present politics and the way that they um, are threatening kind of to trap us. Yes. And he was always worried about people getting trapped in materialism and that aspect of middle class society and neoliberalism and life being reduced to that. And one thing I would add that I would hope would illuminate a little bit, I think he, coming out of that um, 
Southern Jim Crow society, I think that he knew that there were millions of African Americans who were extraordinarily evolved and compassionate human beings in that society, even though they were excluded. It's something that I personally have thought a lot about, and it's part of what my uh, book Mississippi is about. But I think about my aunts and uncles in Mississippi and what wonderful human beings they were. And that just went kind of under the radar for such a long time in American, the wider American society. And I think that that was something that James was just coming back to all the time in both his fiction and his nonfiction. So many of these essays feel extremely contemporary. The stuff we're talking about right now is extremely contemporary, even if they were written a, a while ago. So here are some recent events. Um, Kanye West brought white nationalist and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes to dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump. We did a whole episode on that. Um, and at the same time, Donald Trump and current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have been incredibly close supporters of each other. This incredible dissonance, right, in, in all of those connections. Um, how can McPherson's essay, which is also in your collection, uh, Two Blacks and Jubes, Oh my God, I'm not going to know how to say the title. Hab Rachmon, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, although my wife and children are Jewish. Uh, help us understand this, if it can. Well, first of all, if I may, I think Kanye West would be a perfect example of what McPherson's talking about, people getting lost in a kind of American materialism and chase of money and that kind of um, just Gatsby-esque glittery success that at the middle ends up being very hollow. I think Kanye would be a perfect example of that. I think that the essay is extraordinarily important. And I think that where it can teach us today is that it helps us see that Blacks and Jews have parallels and affinities in terms of being outsiders, in terms of being uh, groups that are trying to enter the mainstream, I don't know, WASP societies, one way people might have talked about it 20 years ago or whatever. But they also, as well as having these kind of parallel desires to enter and become successful, they're also coming out of very different subjectivities. And those differences also lead to clashes. One of the big clashes which he talks about and helps us understand in that essay is that most Jews are what Americans would call white. So to the average black person, that seems like a very kind of both unfair and even suspicious advantage because you can step over and be with the other group if you want to or need to. And 
also, I think that that leads to this kind of suspicion that we see in a lot of black anti-Semitism of Jewish success. And James talks about that as well. And so it's like, how are they doing this? You know, and speaking as an African-American, I feel like that comes from a kind of lack of understanding of all of the components, you know, of what it takes to make it in America. And, and he's very plain about that in the essay about Jewish uh, interest and fidelity to education, to um, tradition, to being able to have held on to their longtime traditions, which for African-Americans were often destroyed or at least maimed. And so that becomes where those affinities and parallels start to break down. And I think that um, his essay is an example of how he can help us, his work can help us learn to think about these things with more complexity and more seriousness. So pivoting to another essay, um, Whitney and I both share a a fandom of Richard Pryor. Um, and I should say that, I mean, this is something that I think I just, I, I know we discussed it in Jim's class and Whit, I don't know if you did, but my fandom preceded this. Um, and then of course, in kind of in conversation with Jim, it just expanded. So he was one of my favorite actors and comedians. And, and I was thrilled to read, uh, there's the 1975 essay interview that McPherson did with him in this collection. And he writes, and I'm quoting here, Pryor's characters in his humor are winos, junkies, whores, street fighters, blue-collar drunks, pool hustlers, all the failures who are an embarrassment to the black middle class and stereotypes in the minds of most whites. The black middle class fears the glorification of those images, and most whites fear them in general. So I'm wondering how this connects back to Junior and John Doe, which we were discussing before. Well, I think if you think about his concern about blacks just mindlessly trying to join the middle class, the white middle class, and forgetting their past while they're doing that, forgetting what is great and sustaining about African-American culture, what he's talking about there is Richard Pryor, who, first of all, I want to say, we often forget his celebrity kind of obscured his accomplishment as an artist. And often we think of him as this, you know, drug addict who was constantly out of control. And we forget what a just absolute brilliant artist he was. So he had an ability, Pryor had an ability to kind of make contact in his art with various areas of black society that people pushing for respectability, for example, Whitney, they don't want that. They're trying to leave that behind, whether it's a street person or a person who lives off the grid, so to speak, mud bones, someone like that in the South. That is what 
a lot of people trying to reach the middle class are trying to run away from. Pryor is pointing at that, and he's saying that's also part of who we are. And we need to remember that. And he's doing it in a way that is hilarious and heartwarming and that the very people who are running away from it also have to admit that they love. But again, because this is America and the complexity of America, they also don't necessarily want white folks looking at this because it is their thinking shameful or whatever. And I think that that's something that he very much put his finger on, and that's how those two essays link. At the beginning of the show, we were trying to imagine what it would be like to have Jim on as a guest or to be discussing his writing alongside our current politics. And I wonder if you would maybe enter that imaginative world with us. Um, Donald Trump was elected president of our country very shortly after Jim passed away. And in the years since, we've seen the rise of uh, misinformation, white nationalism, uh, anti-Black and anti-Asian racism specifically, uh, climate change, and a global pandemic, to mention just a few developments. So I'm curious what you think Jim would be writing about now and what he would be discussing on this show. Well, one thing I'm sure he would be writing about, I mean, if I can say that, but I think so, having thought about this for a while, I think he would be very hard on education, particularly in light of the kind of looming fight that's going to come when the decision on affirmative action in colleges is handed down. I think he would be looking at that very carefully, particularly through, again, that 14th Amendment lens. And I can't underscore that enough in terms of thinking about his thinking and his work and his concern. Because part of what he would do, if you think about some of his other essays, uh, for example, his great essay about blockbusting in Chicago from the 1960s, um, which I hope we'll be able to bring forward in the future, And uh, also Coates has written a lot about this. But I think that James would be pointing at the way that due process and equality is denied so many of these children. And then you want to hold them back at the level of college, which is one of the places that our society has tried to ameliorates a lot of the unfairness of the wider educational system. So I think that that would be something he would be very interested in. I also think he would be writing about um, people like Kanye West. I think he'd be writing about hip-hop. I think he probably would be skeptical of a lot of the kind of performances and claims of hip-hop. I think, you know, there's a lot that he would be just right on and be interested in and would have a lot to say about. Speaking of that affirmative action thing, the thing I've been thinking about is like how the right has been so critical of higher education. And it's a terrible place where, you know, like where you'll you'll meet, you know, right-wing 
politicians and, and believers who don't want their kids to go to college to get indoctrinated by the liberals who live there. And then yet at the same time, they recognize and want to try to keep out others from being able to go there as well. It's a very contradictory position for the right to have. Um, one of many. Skipping that. Oh, <laughs> sorry. One of many. <laughs> yeah, one of many. One of the, it's all, it's all makes no sense what they're doing. Um, so skipping over them, I want to get to one last thing, which is that there's also like, um, I don't like to, I, oh, the term optimistic, I wrote that in there, but it doesn't seem like the right word, but there's some belief. There's a real belief in humanity in, in, in James Allen McPherson's work um, and his belief in what America could be. Um, you heard that in the reading that you gave where he said there was this possibility that did not happen. That doesn't mean that it won't happen or can't happen, right? Um, and in his final essay, he talks about the idea, in the final essay that's in uh, your collection, he talks about the idea that every American should be or could be a synthesis of high and low, black and white, city and country, provincial and universal. If he could live within these contradictions, he would simply be a representative American. That's the quote. Could you talk yes. about that idea in, in his work? Yes. I think, first of all, that idea has its roots in the work of Ralph Ellison, who was one of uh, James's great mentors and friends. And you see that idea in a kind of group of African-American writers that is not always talked about a lot anymore. Ernest Gaines, Michael Harper, Jay Wright, these kinds of writers. But I, I think that, first of all, James had done that himself. He had become that person that you just described. Yes. And so I think part of him, he thought that if he did it, everybody could do it, first of all. <laughs> but I think also he understood that that was the reality and that so much of our kind of American suffering comes from refusal um, from various corners, and this is everyone, black folks, white folks, you know, Latinos, Asians, everyone kind of tries to hug their corner and not credit how much they're being influenced by everybody else. And I think that he saw that uh, a recognition of that, you know, for example, in the essay, uh, Yukio, the one about his friendships, that this kind of world works on the ground in America. And we see it all the time. It's only when we start talking about politics or dividing the spoils that suddenly these conflicts arise. So I think that his hope was that by giving everyone a chance, providing equal opportunity, equal education, providing due process for everyone, that we would come to see that we were much more the same than we were different. And I think that this is one of his kind of core beliefs, particularly in his nonfiction, and it's part of his truth-telling 
I mean, there's so many wonderful, you know, things about him. You think about this guy from Savannah, Georgia, who somehow ends up five years later in Harvard Law School. And then while he's in Harvard Law School, he's hanging out with uh, William Winter and these people from the Atlantic Monthly and all this kind of stuff. His own life showed what happened when people were open to other people that on the surface might not seem to be like them. And I think that he just saw that as the way forward and to cast a slightly darker hue upon it, the only way forward, because otherwise, you know, the other choice is not pleasant. So that's what I think was going on with that. That is fantastic. And I I love, I really appreciate you listening to you talk about um, McPherson's work. It's been, you've done such a great job with editing this book. And Sugi and I both thank you for being a steward of his work, which is very important to us. So thanks so much for joining us. And we encourage our listeners to go and pick up On Becoming an American Writer, which is out now. Okay. Well, first of all, there is more in the files so let's hope that we're able to bring that forward as well and thank you both for having me i really enjoyed being here pleasure thank you so much that's it for the fiction Nonfiction podcast this podcast is produced by ann knigendorf our theme music is composed by travis workman you can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!